Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7? We're going to look at Hebrews 7. I feel like a broken record to stand up and say this is a very dense, complicated passage. We say that every time we open up the book of Hebrews. Today is not going to disappoint in that realm, but have no fear if you don't know who Melchizedek is or you kind of get lost in Abraham's loins, we're going to draw this into a point that I think we're all going to understand and be able to grasp. So let's start in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Let's move to verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we may draw near to God. Let's pray together. God, we seek to draw near to you now, and so would you meet with us? Would you teach us? Would you open our minds and hearts to your word And this story of your son as a new and better high priest of a new and a better hope. We ask in his name, Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I think you always have a temptation in Christianity, wherever it's found, to begin to untangle Jesus from Judaism. We want to kind of separate the two and pull them apart. And here's what I mean by that. The Bible, cover to cover, it tells one single enduring story. God, he makes a perfect world. Humanity, we fall from that perfection and we run away from God. And God begins this enormous story of a rescue to draw us back to worship him forever. It's a wild story if you read this thing cover to cover. You've got this promise to Abraham. You've got the exodus of Israel. You have laws and priests. You have a tabernacle and sacrifices. You have prophecies that are made. And all of them are pointing to this central fulfillment. That God from beginning to end, he has this plan that he will justify humanity. He will make us right before him by covering our sins through his work and by faith in him and drawing us to himself as one people to worship him forever. That was always the theme of this story. 
And so by the time that Jesus arrives in a manger in Bethlehem, he's not born into this ethnic or historic vacuum. When Jesus is born, he's got this enormous story behind him that leads up to and points to and prophesies and promises the coming of this Jesus to fulfill all of these things that have gone before him. I think it's very telling that the very first verses of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, contra everything that you have ever learned in a creative writing class, the New Testament, it begins with a genealogy. Isn't that incredible? I mean, if you have no exposure to the Bible, you're sitting in a motel room, you pick up a Gideon Bible, and you say, I should start reading the New Testament, and you flip open to Matthew chapter 1, you are going to begin to read Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah, and that's your introduction to the greatest news of the world. Isn't that incredible? And it's as if Matthew is saying, you're not going to get the fullness of the story of what Jesus has done unless you understand something about Abraham and something about David and something about the fact that Israel has been exiled to Babylon. That's the story that the Bible is telling us from cover to cover. Now you fast forward to our day, to where we stand, and most of us in this room are Gentiles, right? We're not Jewish or of Jewish descent, and we live in the 21st century. We don't live in the first century when the New Testament was written. And so the details of the Old Testament, they can feel so foreign and obscure to us. We have this anxiousness about us to make Jesus relevant and applicable to our lives today. And so I think that we're afraid that if we begin to bring up stories of burning entrails on an altar before a temple, we're going to start to lose people's attention, right? There's only so much of that somebody can take. And so we take this enormous story of the Bible and we chop the thing two-thirds of the way in And we get rid of these Old Testament bits and we keep what we think is the most relevant part in the New Testament that says that Jesus came, that he died on the cross, and he wins our salvation. We can draw near to God. Now, if we take that bit of the story, and that's the story we tell, that's the story we talk about, that's the story we study, that's where we go in our Bibles in the New Testament, and we don't think about these other bits, if that happens to us, then all of a sudden... Jesus could have been born anywhere at any time and the story wouldn't change, right? I mean, Jesus could have been Ethiopian. He could have been Native American. Jesus could have hailed from Gilbert and that story wouldn't change. He comes from Gilbert, he dies on the cross and he saves us. And that's a similar story to the one that we tell each other. When we do this, when we untangle Jesus from Judaism, the Old Testament ceases to be the story of God working in the world, and it begins to become a story of some neat but extracurricular things that God did in the past. It's not our story, it's a story, and it's a story of some neat things that we can probably learn from, but it's not the telling of the story of the world. I think we can work so hard to make Jesus relevant to our story that we as a people become reluctant to enter his story. We're so busy to get him into our story and to make him applicable to us that we haven't bent the knee to enter the story that he's telling us. 
Hebrews 7 is one of those places in our Bible that wrestles with us into the story of Jesus. It's going to tell the story of the world and is going to tell it through a very unique perspective, one that we don't often think about, the story of the priesthood. We're going to see in this story a setting, a plot, a resolution with humanity's relationship to God as told through the priesthood, and we're going to understand why that is relevant to us. So let's understand this story. Let's dive into Hebrews chapter 7, and let's get the story as it's told just very briefly. We're going to start with the setting for the story. We're going to understand what's the lay of the land here, and where does this all begin, And Hebrews 7 begins in verse 11 by saying, Now if perfection, and I want you to hang on to that word perfection and and chew on that, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest? Now since humanity first rebelled against God, since we first sinned and rejected him and ran from him, and our hearts were stained black, God has begun a project of perfection. You understand that? God has a project of perfection underway in which he wants to make you and I perfect. Sometimes when we hear that word perfection, we connect it to the word performance, and we have a negative connotation with that, and let's dispel that right away. God has never, ever, ever spoken about perfection as this benign, rote, outward, obedient performance that has the trappings and the motions of religion, but it doesn't affect our heart. God has only been about it being jealous about the entire person, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, that we would draw near to him. So when we hear perfection, I want us to think about clean hearts that let us draw near to God. Well, to make us perfect, to draw us to perfection, God gave us, through the people of Israel and all those who surrounded Israel, who had access to Israel, the law and the priesthood. He gave us the law, which is the Ten Commandments and the laws in the Old Testament to tell us this is what it looks like to live perfectly. This is what it looks like to live before a holy God. And he gave us the priesthood to say, this is what you do if you don't do that and you disobey God. These are the sacrifices that will cover for your sins. The law and the priesthood were designed for our perfection that we could pursue this perfection. Now, As Gentiles, this is important, if perfection had been possible through those two things, if we could have obeyed the law and if we could have had our sins covered through the priesthood and the sacrifices on the altar, if those things could have made us perfect, then we as Gentiles who enter this faith, we would be grafted into the new Israel as we are and we would still practice those things an obedience to the law and faith, and an observance of the Levitical priesthood, the center of our spiritual world would be Jerusalem, and we would bring sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem so that God could cover our sins. If those things had made us perfect, we would be observing those things today, but that's the rub. Here's the plot, here's the problem, here's where this thing feels like it gets off course, because... Neither the law nor the priesthood has ever led to perfection. Verse 11, if perfection was possible through priests, we wouldn't have needed another priest. 
Verse 18, if perfection was possible through the law, we wouldn't have needed another promise. Now that begs an important question. What's what's that all about? If God is about this project of perfection, if he wants to make us perfect, why would he dedicate so much time and energy? Why would so much of our Bible be devoted to this project of the law and the priesthood if he now calls those things in verse 18 weak and useless to bring about perfection? Why did we spend all this time with the law and the priesthood if it wasn't going to achieve what God wanted it to achieve? Elsewhere in the Bible, we read that the law and the priesthood serve as one massive bridge that will get us from the promise of Abraham, that you're going to be blessed, that God is going to bring a blessing to all nations, all the way to the fullness of time in Jesus. So the law, it served as a teacher or a tutor or a guardian. When we walked with the law, when we saw the law, even if we didn't have access to the law and that law was written on our hearts, it was a teacher not to lead us to perfection, but to expose our imperfection. I wouldn't know how dark my heart is unless I had the law to reflect the glory of God and I could see how far I fall from that. The law exposed us as a teacher. The priesthood, it did the same thing because the priesthood has always taught us just how costly our imperfection is. When you as a worshiper lay your hand on a lamb, and you confess your sins, and you see symbolically your sin transfer from yourself to that lamb, and that lamb is killed and bled out and put on the altar and burnt before God, and the aroma goes up to him, you as a worshiper understand that sin is costly, and without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness. The law and the priesthood, they expose us. Now, folks, we're, we're, we're grappling with this story. We're grabbing this tiger by the tail. And anytime I've got to get in the pulpit and preach something dense, I typically like to sit down with my kids the night before and explain it to them. If I can explain how Melchizedek gets us to Jesus, to my three and five and seven and eight-year-old around the dinner table, then I can probably explain it to an adult. So I sit down last night. And I draw Melchizedek and Abraham and Lot, and I explain the story about this, and then I draw an arrow that that gives us to Moses and his brother Aaron and the the priests of Levi, and then I try to explain the altar and the lamb on the altar and how dirty hearts uh, can be cleaned through the altar sacrifice, and that gets me an arrow that's going to Jesus and how Jesus, he couldn't have been an Aaronic priest, he had to be a priest from the order of Melchizedek. The whole thing is going off track. I mean, I've got so many lines on the page. I'm starting to sweat. My kids are getting fidgety. I look over at Julie, and she gives me one of those looks she's given me so many times in our marriage, which is, I'm with you, babe. I'll follow you wherever you go, but I have no idea where we're going right now. And I'm trying to explain this thing, and of all that's going on around us, my five-year-old is sitting there with his head in his hands, and he's leaning over the drawing, And he interrupts me, and he says, Daddy, is my heart dirty? Do I have a dirty heart? And it's like a thousand years of a history of the law and the priesthood is distilled in the question of a five-year-old. Is this true of me? Do I have a dirty heart too? Have I sinned against this kind of God and lived not as how he wanted me to live? Is this true of me? 
whether Jew or Gentile, however we come to be exposed to the knowledge of this word, the law and the priesthood, it exposes us. We are helpless to obey our way back to God. We are utterly helpless to do anything in our lives that will cover and atone for the sin that we have. These things have exposed us, and because they've exposed us, they've done absolutely the work that God has given them to do. God appears in this story that he's been telling since Adam and Eve and since Abraham, since he's exposed through the law and the priesthood, and he brings this marvelous solution that will make us perfect, and it will allow us to draw near to God. We got a hint of it back in Genesis 14 when we weren't paying attention, when Melchizedek comes to Abraham and he blesses Abraham, and none of us saw that for what it was. And we got another hint of it in the reign of David when he writes this Psalm 110, and he says there's somebody who's coming who's going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and all of that was kind of lost on us. But whatever was dim in the Old Testament was now made clear in the New Testament that Jesus becomes the new priest who is able to make us clean and perfect and bring us to God. Up until this point, the priesthood had only descended through the tribe of Levi, through Aaron, and all of his sons after him, but something different happens. That was not able to make us perfect, so God begins something that is able to make us perfect. Jesus is born from the royal tribe of Judah, not the priestly tribe of Levi, And so his priesthood is not linked to Aaron, but it's linked to Melchizedek. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience where you feel like you've read so many articles about the person of Melchizedek. If you hear his name one more time, you're going to scream. If you've had a week like that, I totally understand where you're coming from. Melchizedek is just a very mysterious person, and he becomes all the more mysterious in our passage because the writer to the Hebrews says that Melchizedek had no beginning or end, which makes him sound like deity, right? If something is uncreated and has no beginning and never dies, then that's divine. And the writer to the Hebrews might be saying that this is Christ himself who appears in the person of Melchizedek back in Genesis, and that's our hint of the gospel. He could also be saying... That the way Genesis tells the story, of course Melchizedek was born, of course he died, but Genesis doesn't tell us that. He appears on the scene as if he didn't have a birth and as if he doesn't have a death. And because he appears in that way, he kind of resembles Jesus because Jesus doesn't have beginning or end. And so he points to Jesus. However you want to interpret that, both are valid. The point of that the writer is making is not that he wants to pique our interest in the person of Melchizedek and learning more about him. It's that Melchizedek will serve as a signpost that says he makes us look towards Jesus. If anything strikes you about Melchizedek, let that strike you a million fold in the person of Jesus who truly has no beginning or end and is the new and better high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What do we do with this? What do we do with all, our minds have been all over the place. We've spanned the entire Bible. We've gotten this complicated history of the law and the priesthood. What do we do with something like this? Well, even now, I feel the temptation that I exposed at the beginning of the sermon to chop the story of Jesus in half and to make Jesus relevant. I want Jesus' new and better priesthood, his superiority 
over the Levitical priesthood to be relevant to us, right? Gentiles who are living in the 21st century. I want to find a modern American analogy that will help us understand Jesus replacing the priests of Levi. What what would be applicable to us and what would speak to us in our context and our culture? And so I've got a few analogies that might work. The Old Testament priesthood is kind of like an overbearing boss. And Jesus is like a new and better boss whose door is always open. You see that analogy between Jesus and the priesthood? Or better, the priesthood is like modern American religiosity. And Jesus is like a charismatic breath of fresh air that frees us to true spirituality. Or try this analogy, I'm still working on it. The Levitical priesthood is like your mother-in-law. And I'm not sure how to finish that with Jesus, I guess, as your wife. Um, The point is, none of these analogies work. This ain't going to work. The Levitical priesthood is the Levitical priesthood. And Jesus as the new and better high priest is like Jesus as the new and better high priest. We can get to Jesus' priesthood and his new promise that transcends and supersedes and fulfills and is the end of the law. We can get there as a Jew in the first century who grew up with this history of a sacrificial system and we understand this. Or we can get there as a 21st century Gentile who we feel dirty hearts that we cannot cover by anything we do. But however we're drawn to Jesus, we're drawn to the same Jesus, and that is Jesus as the new and better high priest. There's no appropriate analogy for that because there's no other story being told in the Bible except this one solitary story. It's easy, I think, for us to pick a gazillion examples of modernizing or co-opting Jesus so that we can understand him better for our purposes. I mean, there's a whole series of national bestsellers on the market right now that include wonderful titles like Jesus CEO or Jesus Entrepreneur or Jesus Life Coach, subtitle Learn from the Best. Now, maybe some of you have these titles on your desk. This becomes an obvious example of trying so hard to make Jesus relevant to our story, we're reluctant to enter his story. That's an obvious example of making Jesus in our image and not being made into his. But I think maybe a more subtle way that all of us participate in this, co-opting, modernizing, seeking to make Jesus relevant to where we are, is just generally to cease to be curious about the story of the world as it's told from cover to cover in the Bible. I can get so anxious to sit down with my Bible and skim the thing and look for something that's going to instruct me or change me. What I can get out of my Bible, I don't have time to linger over the text and get in my Bible to be caught up and swept up into the story that God is telling. And if I'm not careful, if I spend more time finding ways that Jesus is fulfilling my story than submitting myself to his story, I am going to end up with a Jesus in my image. I'm going to get a Jesus out of this book who marches to my beat, who serves my agenda, who subscribes to my causes, and who gives me the advice I most want to hear. If I'm not careful, 
I'm going to end up with a milk and toast Jesus who tells the story of my personal salvation and fulfillment in life and not the Jesus of the Bible who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and holds court over the entire cosmos. I'm going to get a different Jesus if I don't submit myself to his story. Jesus is not my life coach and he's not my model CEO. Jesus, according to the Bible, is the seed of Eve who crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus, according to the Bible, is the seed of Abraham who blesses the nations. Jesus, according to the Bible, is the seed of Judah who rules the world. He's the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's the prophet who surpasses Moses. He's the king who assumes the throne of David. Jesus is the word made flesh who tabernacles among us. And Jesus is the lamb of God who climbs up on the altar and takes away the sin of the world. What was broken in the garden, what was destroyed in the flood, what was scattered in the tower of Babel, that is going to be repaired That is going to be remade. That is going to be gathered again in the heavenly Jerusalem that is part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And at the center of that kingdom stands Jesus as a king and a prophet and a new and better high priest who is going to make us perfect and clean our hearts and draw us into the presence of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we have a lot of hopes and dreams for our lives and for ourselves and for our families and for our churches and for our jobs. Would you make every vision we have for our life subservient to the vision that you give us? that you are building a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that the stars in the sky are going to be rolled up like a scroll and Jerusalem will descend in a new heavens and a new earth and the work you've given us now of mercy and justice and kindness and neighborly love and evangelism and discipleship will be caught up into the great scene in which you will make us perfect and you will draw us to yourself. Make us a part of that story. Make that our dream and our hope and our desire, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.